If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. The word of the Lord. So do you see what, it, what is it saying? Are there some parts of the body that are more important than others? No, every part of the body is essential. But our tendency as human beings is to make some parts more important than others. And so God says that in order to recognize the full, beautiful, necessary importance of every part of the body, we have to give more honor to the parts that are more often rejected, not appreciated, not given honor. Amen? So I want to talk to you about some of those parts right now of our body. I want to talk to you about who doesn't have honor that needs our special attention and concern. So I'm a Lutheran pastor. I'm Luther Costal, which sounds like a disease, but I'm Lutheran and Pentecostal. But, but if you go visit our church in El Salvador, we have a very strong church, the Lutheran Church in El Salvador. And if you go on a short-term mission trip to visit our church, you will probably stay in our guest home, which is run by that lovely little abuela, that little grandmother that you see in the picture there, right? Her name is Trinidad. And that's her family behind her that helps her run it. The boy on your far right is named Josue, and this picture is from 2014. Um, in 2014, Josue was in their equivalent of high school, which, by the way, already tells you something because not everyone goes to high school in El Salvador. Josue is smart, and he's hardworking. When he was at school, two kids came up to him from the Mara members of the Mara Salvatrucha. How many of you have heard of the Mara Salvatrucha? Uh, you might have heard of it as MS-13, right? You've heard of it? So it's referred to in the newspapers as a gang, but a gang is a little bit of the wrong name for it because if you're in a gang and you kill somebody, the police are after you. But the Mara, where they're in power, they run the police. They're not a gang. They're one of the most powerful organized crime syndicates that has ever existed. They make their money from drugs trafficking, human trafficking, guns trafficking, and the extortion of small businesses. And when they come up to a kid like they came up to Josue, they give them three choices. They say, you can run, you can die, or you can join. And if you join, you have to show that you're serious by being willing to kill a member of your extended family. So Josue did not want to do any of those things. You know, he's a Christian kid. He thought, what am I going to do? He thought, my father will know what to do. That's a picture of his father, Jorge. My father is a strong man. He's a bus driver. He's a man of God. He's spiritually strong. Josue went running home after school, and sure enough, his father had just gotten home from work. And he came outside, and he said to the two boys, the two members of the Mara behind him, he said, you can't have my son. My son is a Christian. Whereupon one of them took out a pistol and shot his father dead in the street. The next day, Josue ran for the United States, where they have relatives. One of about 200,000 kids that have come since 2014 in the exact same situation as Josue. 
Those kids are in our community. Right now, many of them are turning 18. They came at 14, at 15, at 13, at 12. They're turning 18. When they turn 18, they are directly being focused on for detention and deportation. So I just want you to hold that, because we'll get to what that means for us in a little bit. It's not only the kids that are targeted by the Mara Salvatrucha. I want to share with you the story of a woman who is a leader in one of our Lutheran churches in Compton, a church called Pueblo de Dios. This is her story. I cannot return to El Salvador or the MS-13 gang will kidnap my daughter and kill me. I come from a humble background. I worked hard to open my own small store to support my family. We all know about small stores like that, right? Tienditas, we have them here in Long Beach, right? Little stores on the corner. MS-13 started taking over my neighborhood and everyone lived in fear. MS-13 members would come into my store and take things without paying. They would also ask for money almost daily and raise the amount that they demanded constantly. They were demanding more than what I could give. So I was forced to close my store. They were very angry that I closed the store and they demanded 7,000 American dollars or they would kidnap my eight-year-old daughter. They said she was very pretty and they could do a lot of things with her. They also said that if I were to go to the police, they would kill me and my other children. I would not have gone to the police anyways because they are connected with the Mara Salvatrucha and they often tell the members when victims report crimes. The gangs have killed many people who have tried to cooperate with the police. I know I can't go anywhere else in El Salvador because MS-13 is everywhere. And others who have tried to flee to other parts of the country following similar threats have been found and killed. After the gangs threatened to kidnap my daughter, I could not send her to school anymore. We fled to the United States and asked for protection at the border. We were detained in freezing cold rooms and given very little food to eat. The Mara has now started targeting my mother, and I am afraid that she will be hurt or killed because I left. I know this is a hard word to hear, but this is happening to the members of our body. We need to feel the pain in order to do something about it. Amen? So now I'm going to back up a little bit, and I'm going to give you a bigger picture. So hang in there with me. Uh, it's important for us to understand, right, to love God with our minds. That means really trying to understand what is going on, right? So I need to say something about why the Mata got to where they got. There were two civil wars in Central America, in Guatemala and in El Salvador. Anybody here from Guatemala or El Salvador? Which, which country? El Salvador. In El Salvador, the war lasted 16 years. In Guatemala, it lasted over 30 years. Why were they having these wars? Well, in, nine, when the, in 1980, in El Salvador, 14 families owned or controlled 92% of the land since the conquest by the Spaniards. That's called feudalism. They took so much of the profits from the little families that were farming that land 
that the children were malnourished. So these wars were wars of land reform. When the wars started, the people who were leading them came to the United States for help, because we're a beacon of democracy, right? They thought that we would help them fight feudalism in their countries, that they would help them fight the conquistadores. But the problem is that there were two men called, they were brothers, their last name was Dulles. One of them was the head of the CIA, the other one was in the State Department, and they were lawyers on the board of the United Fruit Company. And the United Fruit Company had a sweetheart contract with the 14 families. That meant that they were providing technology and they were getting a big share of the profits that they were taking from those little families that were farming the land. And so the United Fruit Company uh, and the Dulles brothers pushed that we would take the side of the 14 families as a country, and we did. This is sad news, right? This is not what our country is about, but that's what we did. And of course, it was the Cold War. So if we took the side of the 14 families, who do you think took the side of the land reform movement? Russia. Which then meant that we could call them communists. And so we funded that war, and we funded those wars, and we funded those wars, and 500,000 people came to this country fleeing during those wars. When we stopped the funding of those wars, the wars ended, and neither El Salvador nor Guatemala became communist. They weren't actually communists. They were just taking money where they could find it. Now, do you remember when World War II stopped, what the whole world did, or at least the Western powers did, to make sure that there would never be a World War III? Does anybody know this, remember, from your history lessons? It's called the Marshall Plan. Does that help? Invested, the world invested a huge amount of money in the economic development of Germany so that there would never be another Hitler because the people would be prosperous and they wouldn't be susceptible. We didn't do that in El Salvador and Guatemala. The wars ended, and there were generations whose only skill was killing. The land was full of landmines. And so they, you know how when you've been sick, how you're vulnerable and you can get sick again, right? It was very vulnerable to organized crime. And the Mara Salvatrucha, by the way, the Mara Salvatrucha did not start in El Salvador. Does anyone know where it started? Well, you got it. <laughs> because what happened? What happened is that in 1995, we had our last comprehensive immigration legislation in this country. And we had one little line in that legislation that said that if you were a gang member or associated with a gang, you could be deported even if you were a permanent resident. So when people fled here, the 500,000 people that fled, it took them many years to get legal because they were fleeing a country we were supporting. <laughs> so we didn't want to give them refugee status, right? So it took them many years. They lived on the run. They lived in the poorest possible areas. Their children were targeted. The Salvadoran children, the Guatemalan children were targeted by Mexican and African-American and white gangs and they formed their own gang to protect themselves, and it was called the Mara Salvatrucha. But of course, in 1995, the war was over, but there was that one little sentence, and so we deported all these baby gangsters. 
We deported them. They mostly didn't speak good Spanish. They mostly didn't have anybody left in the countries. They were automatic foot soldiers for organized crime. And the Mata exploded. So the situation that I was reading you about that is hurting the members of our body, the United States sowed the seeds for this crop. That doesn't make us responsible. People make decisions. But we do have a special connection, and we should take it seriously. Right now, El Salvador has the highest homicide rate in the world and feminicide. Femicide is killing women um, behind Syria. So it's a horrible situation. It's a human rights crisis. So let me help you to understand this just a little better in terms of, well, what can we do? What, is, what could our country do, right? But I have to start with a little story, one more story. Um, we were doing a legal clinic as Mateo 25. Um, and so there was a mother who had just arrived a couple days before with a nine-year-old daughter, and she was talking to the lawyers, and I was doing childcare with the children. And you know, they were all coloring. You know how children color, and then they, they look down at the coloring, and then they tell you things, right? So she was coloring, and I'll share what she told me in English, although she told me in Spanish. She said, Pastor, Pastor, they started hitting my older brother. And they were hitting him, and they were hitting him. They were hitting him so hard. And there was blood coming out of his nose. And then there was blood coming out of his eyes and his ears. There was so much blood, Pastor. And I was so scared. And my mommy took my hand, and she said, run, run, run. And so we ran. And we ran for days and days and days. And we slept on the ground, and we were cold. And we were hungry, and I was so scared. But we, my mommy said, just keep going, just keep going. And then we got here, Pastor. We got here, and then she lowered her voice to a whisper, and she said, thanks, God, we're safe. And I just, you know, I just was crying out to the Lord in my spirit because they're not safe. In 1948, our country, along with every other country in the world, except for very few, we signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Part of what that included is that we agreed to welcome people who were running from violent persecution in their land of origin as a result of their race, their religion, their political opinion, their gender, or their membership in a specific group. Does everybody get that? That's the definition of a refugee. If you ask for that status from a safe third country, like Costa Rica, which is considered a safe third country, and you get granted that status, you're called a refugee. But you are also legally allowed to come up to our borders, our northern or our southern border, cross one foot over the border, and ask for that status. If you do that, the name of it is asylum, but the criteria is exactly the same as a refugee from a refugee center. Does that make sense? Do you understand that? Now, it doesn't mean you can't do that just because you're starving. You don't, that doesn't count. You can't do that because there's violence in your community and you're terrified. That doesn't count. 
You can only do that if you can prove that you were personally targeted. You understand so far? I know it's complicated. That takes a long time. That takes lawyers. That's really hard, right? Now, you can get asylum because your government is doing this to you or because your government can't protect you. Does that make sense? So everyone asking for asylum from Central America is not saying, except for Nicaragua, where the government is doing it to people. But everywhere else, it's not because the government is doing it. It's because the government can't protect them from the Mara. Does that make sense? Okay. The first thing that a lot of people in churches say is, well, let's help them over there. Why do we need to, let's stop making refugees, right? Well, that's a good plan. Under the Obama administration, they formed something called the Alliance for Prosperity. You guys are doing so great. You're following this very complicated story, but you need to to understand, amen? We have to understand what's happening. The Alliance for Prosperity, where multiple countries getting together to try to do something about the Mata with development assistance and security. And you know what? It worked. They focused on El Salvador to start because it's the smallest country. In two years, the homicide rate was cut in half and the numbers of people coming from El Salvador cut in half. Two years. As soon as the new administration came in, and I want to say to you that I have worked with Democratic and Republican administrations. I'm nonpartisan. This new administration is a different animal than the Bush administration, than Obama, than anybody I've ever worked with. It's a different animal. They stopped the funding for the Alliance for Prosperity immediately. And what do you think happened? The homicide rate doubled. The numbers of people coming doubled. It's directly related. Yes, we should stop it there, but we're not. So instead, we need to respond to the people who are coming. But this administration is making that number worse of the people waiting at the, at the border in three other ways. The first way is, what happens when you get to the border? Anybody knows? If you get to the border, and you, like Josue, you cross the border, you ask for asylum. You have to pass something called the credible fear test. The credible fear test means that some official of our government, not some sweet Christian member of a church, <laughs> some official of our government has to say, I believe that you might be able to get asylum. I believe that you might be the real deal. That's called the credible fear test. You have to pass that and then you enter into the vetting process. They might keep you in detention the whole time you're in the process. If they want to, they can keep you in detention as long as they like. The Bill of Rights does not apply to you. However, if you have children with you, if you have your kids with you, we had something called the Flores Agreement that said that you can't keep children in prison forever who have not committed a crime. So they're supposed to let them out with an ankle bracelet. Have you seen the ankle bracelets? Ankle bracelets are an electronic monitoring system. That means that there's somebody monitoring them to make sure that they come back for their court date. People who have an ankle bracelet, how many, what percentage do you think come back for their court date? 
So it works. It really works to put the bracelets on people, right? If they can do that, they can let out the family. This administration doesn't like those bracelets. They call it catch and release, as if people were fish. And so instead, some of you might have heard what happened about a year and a half ago. Does anybody hear what they did instead? They separated the children, the babies, from the parents. And they put the babies into a process that would ultimately lead to foster care. But in the meantime, they put them in, in some places, they put them in good facilities in, in California. In some places, they put them in cages, like in Texas. Um, and they didn't keep good records, so we didn't know what parents went with what babies. And so we're in the process now of trying to reunite all these families, which is not an easy process. But we have nine families coming in about a week to be reunited. So just so that you know that, we actually need a place for nine families to stay overnight in one week because then they're going out to where their children are, which is all over the country, but they're coming into L.A. first, just so that you know that. Um, right now, it's the Wild West. Sometimes they keep people in detention. Sometimes they separate them. Sometimes they let them out with an ankle bracelet. Sometimes they take all their money, they take their passport, and they take all the evidence for their case, and they drop them at a train, at, on a bus station. Whole families with nowhere to go. It's, we don't know, we never know what they're gonna do. That's the border crisis in a nutshell. Oh, I didn't say, there's two other things they've done. I'm sorry, they can process 300 people a day. That's how many they can process in Tijuana. How many of you have been to Tijuana? A few. So Tijuana has a port. They can process, they can do credible fear interviews for 300 people a day. But right now the government does 20 people a day. What does that mean? It means that you have a big crowd of people waiting, which looks on TV like what? It looks like an invasion, which is what they call it. It's not an invasion. It's a big group of people waiting because they're only processing 20 people a day. They've also instituted two things recently that are essentially sealing the border. One of them is called stay in Mexico. After your credible fear interview, even if you pass it, they send you back to Mexico to wait for to vet your case, which means that you may still be in danger because the Sinaloa cartel works with the Mara. It means that it may be really hard to get across for your interview because the interview doesn't happen in Mexico. So you may not be able to get across for your interview. So you may not win your case, even if you have a really good case. Um, so there's a stay in Mexico program, which is sending most people back. Um, there's also a pending rule that the Supreme Court let hold while it's pending, which says that if you get to our border and you ask for asylum, you need to have asked for asylum in every country that you pass through. Well, including Guatemala and El Salvador, which are countries people are running from. Does that make any sense? But that's how this government looks at it. So they have essentially for now sealed the border. They didn't need to put a wall. They found other ways to seal the border, to seal the border specifically against asylum seekers. Now, they've, the other thing that they've done that you need to understand is since 1948, we have accepted 60 to 100,000 refugees per year into the United States. Because we didn't give a number, you know, when we all signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we didn't give a number. 
but the U.S. has accepted somewhere between 60 and 100,000 every year since 1950. This administration has a cap of 18,000. So a friend of mine who works for international refugee stuff says, what are we going to do? The U.S. isn't doing its share. We have nowhere to put those people. We have the biggest international refugee crisis in the world right now that has ever existed. And the U.S. is only taking 18,000. So you know what's happening? This is so ironic. We have people at our southern border from Africa. Because they were in a refugee center in Africa. And they knew that they were never going to get in. And so they crossed continents to try to get to our southern border. And they are on our southern border. And they are waiting. So um, this is a hard picture, my brothers and sisters. But please do take it in because it really matters. It really matters what happens to vulnerable members of our body. Amen? Jesus said, whatever we do to the stranger, who do we do it to? To him. That's what he said in Matthew 25. So I was going to tell you more in general about immigration, but I'm not right now. I just want to talk to you about what the church can do and what the church is doing and what we can do together. So I want to say that we have to accompany people, that that's number one, right? That's what Jesus does, right? He accompanies us. We are, that was such a beautiful song we sang, right? About how we're in these struggles and there's no way we can't see any way and Jesus accompanies us and then there's a way in the desert. Then there's a way when there's no way. Amen? So we have to accompany our brothers and sisters who feel stuck with no way. The 17-year-olds who are on the verge of being deported. We have to... Because before you're, before you're 18, there's a looser criteria. You're sort of in this weird foster care system that I can give you details about if you want. But when you turn 18, man, you're about to be deported unless you have a place to stay. We have a lot of those kids that need a place to stay. And, we, and I'm going to talk to you about how we do this. But the first step is, to, I just want you to get this in your head, the church has to accompany we have to walk with people. We have to help them find a way where there's no way. In the name and spirit of Jesus. Amen? And when we do that, when we begin to accompany people, something else happens. And this is where I need to talk to you about the larger role of the church. This is going to surprise you. We have had two completely bipartisan immigration reform bills. Because our immigration system, the whole system is a mess, which I don't have the time to talk to you about, but it's a mess. It's ineffective, illogical, unjust, and inhumane. It's a mess. Canada does better. We could do much better. We've had two, count them two, completely bipartisan immigration reform bills. When we poll people on the content of those bills, we get 75% support. The DREAM Act, anybody know DREAMers? People who are brought here as small children. And the DREAM Act gets 90% in the polls. Why can't we pass them? Why can't we change the system? Well, your average American never calls Congress unless it's about you. Anybody here ever called Congress? Maybe, maybe somebody, somebody probably has. But most people, you never call Congress unless it's about you, right? And immigration is just not about enough people. So people look at this legislation and they go, oh, that looks good, but they don't call. Who calls? Oh, and by the way, immigrants don't call because immigrants have no hope. 
right? So who calls? The 20% of the population who thinks that immigrants are the problem. And they call over and over and over again. So we don't have the political will to pass these. But I have a couple of questions for you, my friends. What is the one institution in our society that is mandated to care about others as if they were us? If we don't do that, we're not disciples of Jesus. The church is the only hope. And what is the one institution mandated to give hope where there's no hope? The church. The exchange, what, what happens when immigrant believers and non-immigrant believers come together as the body of Christ? You have the exchange of hope and passion. Non-immigrants get passion because suddenly we go, oh, this is about us. This is about our body. And immigrants get hope and say, it is worth calling because I'm not alone. We had our first bipartisan bill in 2007. It lost. We had our second bipartisan bill in 2013. Between 2007 and 2013, we started the Evangelical Immigration Table, which is the broadest coalition of evangelicals working on a social justice issue since abolition. In 2013, we passed the Senate. We would have passed the House except that the Speaker of the House wouldn't take it to the floor because some members of the party, the Republican Party, although we had, we had enough Republicans who were supporting this to pass it, but some members of the party said this is too good of an issue for us to let go and solve. So it didn't go to the House. We would have won had it gone. That's a big, that's a big progress. That's a big progress. In 2007, 83% of white evangelicals were against immigration reform. Even though they liked the, when they looked at the actual proposal, they liked it, but they were against the idea. In 2013, 72% of white evangelicals were in favor of it. That was the work of the table. That was God's work. That was the church at work. But as you know, we're not in that situation anymore. A lot of our brothers and sisters are in captivity to the world. Amen? Captivity to the hate and fear in the world. But can God make a way where there's no way? Do you think so? Do you think so? Come on. Can God make a way? So we formed Matthew 25, Mateo 25. We formed it to go deeper because the problem with the evangelical immigration table is that it was all advocacy. It was all political. We said we have to accompany each other because that's what's going to fuel advocacy. That's what's going to make us sustain. That's when it's going to keep people from slipping back or backsliding, right? Just because the world pulls them, is if we accompany each other. So we accompany in order to advocate. We advocate and accompany. Does that make sense? And the way we do it is churches that are mostly immigrant and churches that are mostly non-immigrant working together as the body of Christ well, I'm going to tell you something that is going to make sense to you. Most people don't understand it, but you're going to get it, given who you are. That doesn't work unless you have puentes. Who are puentes? A lot of puentes in this room. Puentes are young people who are bilingual and bicultural. That's a puente. 
because a puente can help an immigrant church and a non-immigrant church to work together. Otherwise, they can't. So in Matthew 25, Matthew 25, we form support circles to accompany people like these 17-year-olds turning 18. Someone in the support circle has to be willing to give their home, but the whole support circle works together to provide what's needed for that family so that you're not, if you're hosting, you're not doing it all. You're just providing a space. And then the whole circle, immigrant, non-immigrant, and puente, works together to accompany that family. So that's what I want to prayerfully ask you to consider, is would you be willing, we have a Long Beach support circle, you know, would you be willing to be part of it, and would you be willing particularly to host an 18-year-old, because that's our greatest need right now. Um, so I just want to put that out. But I want to say that, that, you know, there is this horrible crisis. Those of us, I do a lot of work on the border. Our puentes do immersions, take people across the border to see what's happening with the folks that are there. I do a lot of work here with these families. It breaks my heart. The only way I can do it is because I see God at work in the midst. Because in our support circles, I see God at work. I see the love of Christ made real for people who are suffering unjustly. And that gives me hope. And that gives me energy. So let's pray. Lord of all grace, of all mercy, of all justice, and of all hope. We ask that you would not, that you would hear the cries of the strangers at our gates, particularly the young people, Lord, who are suffering so terribly, and the children. Um, we ask that you would let those cries reach the ears of the people who make decisions, that you would let us be messengers that help that happen, that you would help us to be your hands and feet, loving people and sharing with them and accompanying them. We ask that you would give us the passion and the hope to see your will done, to see your justice flow down like mighty rivers and your righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We praise you, Lord, because we know that this is your good and precious will, and we thank you in advance, and we ask that we may be instruments of your peace. In your holy and beautiful name we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.